Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, um, we're going to look at uh, the Gospel of St. John, the fourth chapter, the fifth through the 42nd verse. So it's a long passage from the Gospel, and it's the story of Jesus encountering the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. There's all sorts of implications for this particular narrative, and there's all sorts of ways that we might want to interpret it. Um, and, and more than one way probably is, is legitimate because it probably is a much more in, inclusive narrative than, than many of us would, uh, would make it. But what happens is as Jesus now is uh, on his journey toward Jerusalem, and it was much shorter for them to, from Galilee, for them to cut through um, the province of, of Samaria. Although many, many of the Jews chose to go around it simply because of the hostility of the Samaritans toward the Jews. But it was uh, only three days if you went through Samaria, and it could be as much as four days if you went around Samaria. So if you wanted to get to Jerusalem, you simply took the chance. And so the gospel then begins when Jesus came to a Samaritan town called Sikhar, um, which apparently is today Ashkar, near the land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well is there. And Jesus, tired by the journey, sat down by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And his disciples, who had gone into the town to buy, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, What? You are a Jew, and you ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? And uh, Jews, in fact, do not associate with Samaritans. And so Jesus replied, If only you knew what God is offering, and who it is that he's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have been the one to ask, and he would have given you living water. So here's the first encounter now. The disciples are gone. They're gone into town to buy something to eat. And a Samaritan woman approaches the well where Jesus is sitting. And this, this is interesting in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, Jesus talking in public alone to a woman. And uh, secondly, uh, even a Samaritan woman. The rules were so strict that even in Jerusalem itself, the rabbis would not speak to their own wives in public. And, uh, and it's, um, it, it's a, it was a very strong taboo, and yet Jesus seems rather relaxed in, uh, in speaking to the woman. And the woman herself is surprised, not just because she's a woman, but, but she's also a Samaritan, and, and you know, you don't speak to Samaritans. And so why why are you why are you talking why are you talking to me and and you want me to give you a drink and and the utensils that I use are not even purified or cleansed according to rabbinic norms so she's pretty perplexed now as to who this Jew is and what his intentions are and what he's talking about and uh, so she asks a simple question she asks the question of the obvious um, that uh, you want me to give you a, a drink of water? 
And Jesus then uses that opportunity to move the conversation into a deeper level. And he says, if only you knew what God is offering and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked, been the one to ask and he would have given you living water. But the woman turns to him when he says this. We know what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the cleansing power of God. Um, but she says, well, you don't even have a bucket. And, and the well is deep. How could you get this living water from here? Are you gr a greater man than our own father, Jacob, and, and who gave us this well and drank from it himself with his sons and his cattle? In other words, you don't even have a bucket, and yet you're presuming that you're going to draw water out of this well? Are you saying you're greater than Jacob? And, uh, and Jacob was, as far as the Samaritans go, the great patriarch for them. And, uh, and, and Jesus says, uh, whoever drinks this water will get thirsty again. But anyone who drinks the water that I shall give will never be thirsty again. For the water that I shall give will turn into a spring of inside him, welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is inviting this Samaritan woman now to move more deeply into the very existential moment that she has. And in so doing, all, uh, invites all of us to use the existential moments of our own lives to look more deeply into the mystery of God within us and God among us. And, uh, and so he's not saying, he's not criticizing her at all. He's saying, he's making a commentary. You know, if, if I were um, to say, yeah, I'm greater than Jacob and I can get water out of this well without a bucket, um, that would be one thing. But, but I'm really saying that there's something more significant than the water in this well. And that is the living water. And that is the water that comes up and washes unto eternal life. Now, here we're entering into a very, very subtle discussion on the part of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And basically, the Samaritans did anticipate the coming of the Messiah. And it's in this story that we come to learn that actually their anticipation of the Messiah might even be more authentic than the people of Israel. If we recall what the people of Israel are believing, they think that if a Messiah comes, he will come as a great conqueror, as a great general. He will come with the intention of, of dramatically crushing evil, lifting up the righteous, um, overcoming the evil empires of the age, establishing Israel as the great kingdom of the earth, and so on and so forth. The, the Samaritans are expecting a Messiah also. But their Messiah that they expect is much more in conformity with what is promised in the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, we read, um, Do not let me hear again, you said, the voice of the Lord my God. No look any longer on this great fire. I shall die. I and the Lord said, to, I, the, and the Lord said to me, All they have spoken is well. I will raise up a prophet like yourself for them from their own brothers, and I will put my words into his mouth, and he shall tell them all I command him. And so basically, they're looking at a Messiah in line with Deuteronomy, who is kind of a prophet, and whose words will be the words of God. 
That's probably why the Samaritan woman is chosen as the audience in this exposition of Jesus's narrative, because basically he's aiming at something that she kind of understands. If he said this to a Jew, they would miss the messianic implications of it. If he says this to a Samaritan, they may well pick up the messianic Im implications of it. And um, though so, so the woman now is kind of intrigued with what he's saying. She realizes that he's not just into a normal conversation, but there's something more to what he's saying than normally one would hear by listening only to the surface. And so she says to him, sir, give me some of that water so that I may never get thirsty and never have to come here again to draw water. And then Jesus wants to manifest his power of prophecy to her. And so he says, go call your husband and, and then come back. And the woman embarrassed says, well, I, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you are telling me the truth. You're right to say I have no husband, although you have had five. And the one you have now is not your husband. In other words, you're just living with someone now and you're not even married to him. Um, and the woman says, stands back in kind of shock and says, you spoke the truth. I see you are a prophet, sir. And so that's exactly then what Jesus is doing. He's drawing her into the recognition of this deuteronomical expectation of the great prophet who is to speak the word of God. Prophecy always and almost always looked more deeply into the reality at hand and was able to interpret it not from the outside in but from the inside out and able to interpret it through the divine word. And so she is saying this is whom we have expected is a prophet able to do this. And so I see then, because you can do this and because you have an insight into my life, that there's no other way you would have known it had the Lord not shown it to you, then I see that you are a prophet. But then she goes on to say, you know, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. The mountain is Jerazim, and there was a temple that the Samaritans built in Jerazim. It had since been destroyed probably almost 100 years before the Lord. But uh, she says, you know, this is where we still go to worship, even we go into the ruins to worship. While you say, and she says, that Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. In other words, you know, what are you, what are you using your prophecy on me for when you're a Jew and you don't believe what we believe? And yet at the same time, you obviously have a, pro a prophetic power within you. And so Jesus says to her, believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you shall worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. But the hour will come, in fact, it is already here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And that is the kind of worshiper the Father wants, for God is spirit, and those who worship worship in spirit and in truth. And so basically then, what Jesus is doing is saying, you know, the question that you ask or the observation that you make is essentially, 
irrelevant to what's transpiring in front of you. The Messiah is neither going to be bound to Jerusalem or to Jerusalem. That, as a matter of fact, he is going to be the free agent of the Father, functioning, first of all, from among the chosen people, first of all, emerging out of the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. We already have seen his image portrayed for us in the book of Deuteronomy. And so... Um, and so Jesus is now telling her, overcome this division, overcome the separations between you. If you want, if you are moving toward authenticity, then move toward that authenticity. And the woman said, I know that the Messiah, that is the Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will tell us everything. I who am speaking to you, Jesus said, am he. Here he very clearly accepts the title of Messiah, something that he hides from the Jews and something he orders his disciples not to tell the Jews because their expectation of who the Messiah is is not who he is. And for them to uh, put the title Messiah on him is to demand of him something that he is not in order for them to believe. If he were to say to them, I am the Messiah, and they say, well, then exactly what the devil said to him in the temple, then jump off the tower and the angels will save you, and if you can't do that, you're not the Messiah, then they're not going to believe in Jesus. They're going to become disbelievers, unbelievers. But since the, since the Samaritans seem to have a more, a more scriptural understanding of who the Messiah is going to be, one that obviously emerges from the pages of the law and the prophets, that Jesus is not hesitant to allow her because her understanding of who the Messiah is is more in conformity with who Jesus is than what the Jewish expectation of the Messiah is. And so he then tells her that she has guessed correctly, she has presumed correctly, yes, he is the Christ, yes, he is the Messiah. I am he. The I am comes again into John's gospel, that identification of Jesus Christ with the living God, that identification of Jesus Christ with the voice in the, in the burnt, to Moses in the burning bush, and also the voice that we hear, or the I am that we hear in the prophecies of Isaiah as well. And so what we come to understand then is that Jesus is found within those who are not of, of who are not of the Jewish race, those who are not of the Jewish faith, that they themselves then are the ones who recognize because they are more faithful to the scriptures. They have less cultural accretions and less political additions than the people of Israel have. And so then he, he then Jesus, at this point, the disciples returned. And so after he acknowledges the fact to her that he is the Messiah, the disciples come back, and they're shocked. He's talking to this woman publicly, and he's talking to a Samaritan woman. But they don't say anything because they're used to, they're, they've gotten used to the fact of opening their mouths when they shouldn't and not understanding what they should. And so basically the woman, however, leaves the company. She hurries back to the town and she says, come and see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Tell me everything I ever did. That's the mark of a prophet. 
that's not, you know, it's, uh, it's not the, the mark, oh, here's a miracle worker. So that's the mark of prophecy. And so I wonder if he is the Christ. I wonder if he's the Messiah. Jesus has already told her he's the Messiah. And so she's saying to them, this might be true. This might be him. And the people of town came out, and they wanted to see him, and they wanted to speak with him. Because if he were the Christ, if he were the Messiah, they wanted a conversation with him. They wanted to know God's will for them and God's word for them. And meanwhile, the disciples were simply urging him to have something to eat. And uh, once again, they don't know what to make of this because they're, they struggle with that same messianic expectation. That's a part of the problem at the crucifixion. You know, he disappoints them. He's not what they were hoping he was. And remember, you know, James and John's mother even coming says, you know, we expect you to be a great king and I want my sons to rule with you. And the disciples are arguing among themselves, you know, who gets to sit at the right hand and all of this kind of thing. So the disciples are locked into the misunderstandings and misapprehensions of Israel, whereas the Samaritans are free of that, for they have followed a different tradition. They have followed a different scriptural tradition. And so when the disciples then began to, they don't want to deal with this because they, they don't understand it. And so they go back, you know, eat something. Um, how many times does we, do we hear eat something to overcome all sorts of awkward situations? And Jesus said uh, to them, however, he's, it's, another, it's another lesson for them. Um, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete his work. Have you not a saying, four months and then the harvest? Well, I tell you, look around you, look at the fields. Already they are white, already for harvest. So he's saying to them, you know, this idea of the food that you want to offer, he's doing the same thing with the food for the disciples that he did with the water for the Samaritan woman. He's saying, all right, the food is an existential reality. The food is a concrete something in your hand. Look beyond it. Look beyond it in relationship to me. And what you will begin to see is that is that the age of the prophet is coming the age of the messiah is upon us the age of messiah is with us and so he says this and uh, and as he does and as he does so the samaritans then began to come out of their town and on the strength of the women's testimony and he told me everything I have ever done. In other words, he is a prophet. He is a prophet. So when the, when the Samaritans came up to them, they begged him to stay with them. So he did stay for two days. And when he spoke to them, many more came to believe. And they said to the woman, now we no longer believe because of what you told us. We have heard him ourselves and we know that he really is the savior of the world. There's two things here. First of all, the vulnerability of the Messiah, the vulnerability of the Samaritans to acknowledge the truth of the Messiah when they were when the Jews themselves were blocked from doing so by their own expectations. And in being blocked from doing so by their own expectations, they are unable to move into the same depth of the mystery of the word that the Samaritans are able to move into. And it's really interesting because after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the Samaritans converted to Christianity in large numbers quickly before anybody else did. And part of that was the authenticity of the scriptural tradition, which they had retained, even though they had not retained the fullness of revelation that the Jews were entitled to. They retained a sufficient amount of it 
um, that they could trace back into Deuteronomy and Isaiah the person that they were facing. The Jews could not do that. They traced him back instead into folklore, into legend, into false expectation. And so what we have then is uh, something that comes up often in the scriptures and often in the story. So for instance, in the coming of the Messiah among the Jews, the only ones who were, who were in any way prone to be susceptible to the proclamation of Jesus, to the, to the kerygma of Jesus, the only ones were the ones who were truly deeply imbued in the... Uh, in, in the Old Testament. And so they had some sense, and in this, of course, they shared something with the Samaritans. They, in some sense, had uh, an understanding of who it was that they were looking for, of what it was that they were looking for. They were vulnerable to the truth. The Blessed Mother, certainly she was deeply imbued with the Old Testament. One cannot recite the Magnificat, one cannot re recite that without seeing an enormous amount of Old Testament illusion in that. And, um, and so we, we, we find that, that there is the suspicion of the authenticity of the texts in the Jewish memory. Um, even though much of it had been overcome, even in the even in in those of goodwill, um, but because of popular expectations, popular hopes, because of the tremendous dedication, I suppose you know, to the victories of David and to the greatness of the Davidic kingdom. And so, what what we what we see and hear then for ourselves is, the more imbued we are with the tradition, the tradition both of the faith of the church and of the words of Scripture, the more vulnerable we are to be able to see and to hear the presence of the living God in the midst of the ordinariness of our everyday lives. If we simply then create a God. If we simply take a Jesus and make him what we want him to be rather than who he has revealed himself to be, we fall into the trap of the Hebrews of the first century. And we block our ability to see who he truly is and who he really is. And so it's, it's why it's important for us to have a tradition because that is the foundation, that is the platform that we need in order for us to be able to understand the contemporary age. We find it now very, very common and, uh, and, and, and it, it seems like it's everywhere. You know, everybody has a better idea of who Jesus is. Everybody has a better idea of who the church is. Jesus and the church have both been disappointments to those, to many of the superzealous, and um, and so we're going to have to recreate it ourselves. Like I said before, this seems to be the thrust of the German synod. Then the church was a disappointment to us, and therefore, you know, its interpretation of Jesus is a disappointment to us. We have to start from scratch. We have to do the whole thing all over again. And that's just not, you know, picking on the on the German synod. It's all around us. Listen, just listen. And we hear that. You know, the church says this, but I think this. As soon as we start hearing that, we're entering back into the first century of Palestine again. We're entering back into where we know who the Messiah is. We're Peter when he, we're, we're, we're Peter when, when he testifies to Jesus as the Messiah and then, in, then proceeds to tell him what that is supposed to mean and not what Jesus says it means. Um, it's, it's, exactly, um, it's exactly the same thing in the Transfiguration. 
Peter doesn't stop to think what Jesus is communicating to them about the future. And instead, he starts to go on about what he thinks should be done in the present. And God himself interrupts pizza, uh, Peter and, uh, and says to him, you know, um, <laughs> listen, don't talk, listen. And I think that that's the difference then in the same kind of dynamic between the, the Samaritan's receptivity of Jesus as the prophet, as the Messiah, and the Jewish um, inability to do so, to the fact where Jesus even has to keep it a secret. We call it in the, in the exegesis of the, of the Synoptic Gospels, we, we, we call it the messianic secret. Don't tell anyone. Don't say anything to anyone. Even at the Transfiguration, don't say anything until I've risen from the dead. And, um, and in, in every case where there is a manifestation of the messianic mission of Jesus to the disciples, he orders them to tell no one. And uh, because they raise false expectations and destroy the capacity to believe the truth. And I think that that's probably something that we're encountering in this gospel story today. The authenticity comes through the simplicity, through the naivete in many ways, through the goodwill, but even with a lack of knowledge and understanding that the Samaritan woman has, that we're, what we're seeing is this vulnerability to the Word of God uh, among those who are not really um, in, in the mainstream of revelation, while at the same time we find a very strong resistance to the Word of God, to the truth of the Messiah, among those to whom everything has been given. And that's why we see in the modern world the great reaction against, you know, the church disappointed us, so we have to build a new church ourselves. God disappointed us, so we have to recreate a new God, and so on and so forth. It's the ones deep within the church who are doing that. And in so doing, they identify themselves exactly with the false messianic hopes of the Hebrew people. And they refuse to see what is before them, which is the living bread and the living water who is Jesus Christ and, and who calls them to himself and desires to purify them and transform them to create within them what, what the transfiguration was in Christ, what Paul refers to in, in Corinthians and in Romans as a metamorphosis, as an internal transformation. Um, the illumination that the apostles saw <coughs> in the transfiguration is supposed to become the illumination of the human soul, the human spirit, when in fact it acknowledges, recognizes, and receives both the word of God and the word of Jesus Christ and the scriptures in the church and the presence of God, the bread of life in the Eucharist and the living waters of Christ who are in baptism and so forth. And so basically what the Samaritan woman might instruct us is be humble, be receptive, know the sources, know the tradition, be faithful to that, and don't presume that you somehow or other know more than the living God. And don't presume that you have a right to individually and personally interpret what the expectation of the presence of Jesus Christ, the church, and the world is supposed to be. But humbly bow before the truth of your own tradition, and in so doing, come to see more deeply and to understand more clearly what the gifts of the Lord are to those of us in this age and in every age. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. 
archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. So